need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, still of the firm belief that Malcolm in the Middle is Pete Cranston, it's Andy Greenwald! And that's not a Your Honor joke. Is Malcolm and Marie in the Malcolm in the Middle extended universe? Yeah, the the Malcolm, the Malcolm verse. Uh, Andy, we're going to be talking today about WandaVision, which referenced heavily Malcolm in the Middle. That's why I made Mm -hmm. that joke. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, about Barb and Star visit, Mm -hmm. go to Vista. What's the name of that movie again? Barb and Star. Barb and Star and the Black Messiah. That's right. And uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about this Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Donald Glover reboot of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It's all coming up on The Watch. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. What's up, man? Happy Monday. Happy President's Day, right? I feel like it's been President's Day like three times this year already. Well... I mean, it's there was there was new President Day. I think we yeah, all remember right. that. There was a quit the old President Day. Uh huh. And now we have another holiday. So I think we're I think it's going well. Uh, thanks for joining me on a federal holiday. Thank you, Kaya, for joining us. Also, guys, as we get into it, I have to. I hate to put. Well, let me let me let me back that up. I actually love to put Chris on the spot, <laughs> but. I do think that people like to sometimes a little window into, you know, what we're like IRL. And I oh, want sure. to IRL express gratitude that Chris did the kindest thing someone can do for someone in 2021, which was help a brother out with that vaccine appointment for a parent. That's right. Chris came through. I got my with, own batch that I'm cooking up. I'm just, it was wild. No, it I figured wild. it out. Yeah, no, uh, just, shout out to, uh, shout out to the, the, the kind folks over at Rite Aid who rolled out a, uh, a workable website. Especially for uh, mothers of only children who live in California, <laughs> uh, in, but who themselves live in Philadelphia and have expressed little to no ambition or initiative about getting vaccinated. And what was great was Chris not only hooked me up with a link, but Chris used his years yeah. of just hovering over the refresh key, waiting for that latest Supreme drop. No, you never right. knew, like when those Allman Brothers Beacon Theater residency tickets go on sale, you have to be ready at, at midnight. It was great. It was great. And I'm very grateful. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome, man. That's very nice of you to say. Uh, so we have WandaVision, and I think we're going to have a, a rather extensive conversation about the new episode, the most recent episode of that. Yes. Um, and we have a couple of other angles that we want to hit that from outside of just the show, but we're going to talk about the show itself. But before we get to WandaVision, I wanted to talk a little bit about probably the, I don't know if it's the biggest, but it was, a, it was definitely the most 
warmly received piece of television news over the weekend, which was that Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, basically the homecoming queen and the starting quarterback of the internet, are going to be rebooting Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Unclear who is who in that analogy, sure. and I think that's good. <laughs> yeah. The, the, they're going to be rebooting Mr. and Mrs. Smith for Amazon. Uh, it's going to be show run by Francesca Sloan, who worked on Fargo and worked on Atlanta. Um, obviously, Mr. and Mrs. Smith was kind of, I don't know if I would call it the pinnacle, but it was definitely a, a, a valuable artifact of like late 90s, early aughts celebrity culture. When did that come out? Like uh, 2005? 2005. Adam Brody was in it. So it that's was... right. So yeah, it was like closer. It was, it was, I know that it was after. <laughs> I remember it as an Adam Brody vehicle. It was I Ocean's 12 followed up Mr. and Mrs. Smith because Ocean's 12 has like a lot of um, vibes about like the fallout from Mr. and Mrs. Smith for Brad Pitt. Uh, in any case, Mr. and Mrs. Smith was Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie playing assassins who were also married to each other and they discover one another's secret identity and they pitted against one another. Um, so it's going to be remade as a series on Amazon. First, just first reaction, first blush take on this. First blush is Twitter stays winning. First mm. they got Gina Carano's scalp, then they get the show that they incepted out of their dreams. Sure. Good job by you, social media. You did it. Keep up the good work. Um, no, I'm being glib. There, there's nothing wrong here. There's no bad news here. This is great. This is exciting. You want to see the best players of the generation play against each other, right? Like, that's generally what you want. Yes. And I don't necessarily even mean on the same team. I'm not trying to force this, like, uh, Kevin Durant analogy here. I'm just saying that there are few performers, entertainers, truly, in terms of being multi-hyphenates, writers, directors, stars, as thrilling, as exciting, as at the peak of their powers as Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And they're going to do something fun together. And I and I I just want to double back and underline that one more time because I think that if there has been any negative blowback to the press release about an announcement of something that we don't fully even understand, they what did it will an instant. I mean, like they seem they seem involved. This isn't one of those things where like Chris Evans oh, doesn't know that he's going to be in a Captain America. No, movie. I didn't mean to suggest that. I just mean that we don't know anything about what their take is sure. or what or what the tone will be. But if there was any negative blowback, it seemed to be that both artists um, who have given us such staggering creative and aesthetic heights, is this, for lack of a better word, slumming? Is this just sort of going to be popcorn fare, right? And first of all, we have no way of knowing one way or another. Second, popcorn fare is awesome. Love popcorn. Third, people make decisions for a lot of different reasons in terms of their creative career. One of them is, the one, the, the one that really drives most decision-making is, do I want to spend time with these people? Will it be fun? And these two like each other, admire each other. This sounds hella fun, right? And I, for one, fully support two of the best TV stars of this era chasing fun. I'm fine with it. I'm fine with this. I'm going to play devil's advocate for the sake of the podcast, though. Man. Do you You're think the that real they, hero here? Do you think Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge were like, "Damn, FX is already rebooting scenes from a marriage. What can we? What can we do otherwise?" <laughs> like, do you, so. So the joke is it has a kernel of truth in it. If this is what they were going to do together, if if Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge are going to collaborate, is this what you want from them? Are these two people who are at this kind of moment in their careers where I don't know if they can write their own 
check or if they can call their own shot or if they, they, they're the Patrick Mahomes of Hollywood or whatever analogy you want to make. But if, if they have all this credibility, would you rather they do something truly original? Would you rather they do something that isn't rooted in the intellectual property of like a mid-level blockbuster that sort of torpedoed two careers? Now, I can think of all sorts of ways in which this goes really right, where it's like, Years later, 15 years later, they're re-interrogating celebrity culture by like looking at the, Mr. and Mrs. Smith as like an artifact of 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 our obsession with people from 2005. See, and then they're kind of messing around with it now. Or maybe they just want to like run around and shoot at one another and then kiss. I think it's interesting. Um, by the way, that just sounds like a podcast to me. <laughs> but I, it's interesting that that and I don't think you're alone in this, but it's interesting that the main takeaway of the movie Mr. and Mrs. Smith for a lot of people seems to be what it contributed to celebrity culture in America, as opposed to the fact that it was a zippy Simon Kinberg script and Doug Lyman generally doesn't make bad movies, having, like we said before, like big popcorn fun, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, to me, it is a really, really ripe piece of IP to turn into a TV show just because it's a very simple, very attractive, very pliable concept. Yeah. The second point I would make is it's worth putting this in the context of, in the business context, which is this is part of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's overall deal at Amazon. This is not Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Donald Glover, two highly attractive free agents deciding to team up and play for the Brooklyn Nets. I'm really committed to making this about Durant somehow. (laughs) This is specifically something that I think she either cottoned to, brought to them, or or was suggested to her. And then she cast the net out wider as to who she might want to work with on it. It was reported in one of the pieces announcing this news that Donald Glover is mega deal shopping himself. Mm -hmm. His overall with FX will likely be either up or close to up by the time seasons three and four of Atlanta are done shooting. So he's testing the waters. Amazon is one of the places that has very deep pockets. So rather than think of this as both of these two dream project was to do this, it's better to think of this as it's Phoebe Waller-Bridge's next project. And Donald Glover is excited to be a part of it and contribute to it, obviously. And also gives him a really, I think, safe, both in terms of it being entertaining and high profile, but also safe because he's going to work with Phoebe Waller-Bridge landing spot while he decides what he's going to do next in his, uh, in, in his career. And, and for what it's worth, Phoebe's like, I mean, Killing Eve is sexy, interesting spy stuff, basically. Yeah. I right? don't know she that it's a- really been a very good show since she left, but sure. No, but she might have more things to say since she really only said that first season. Mm-hmm. Um, second, thing is that, you know, that her most recent work that we haven't seen yet is this forever delayed Bond movie, right? Which she did a, what she seems did to be a, a significant pass on. Uh, yeah, she, I think pass. she did a punch up. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea what, 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 like what level of, of work she did on it, but I guess my point is this. So you and I both watched two new movies over the weekend. One was Judas mm-hmm. and the Black Messiah. One was, um, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I got, I got it right. And very different films. And, I read reading about them though, uh, kind of made me respect both of the groups of people who made those movies a lot because I felt like in the case of Judas and the Black Messiah, 
Shaka King and Ryan Coogler, uh, the director and the producer respectively, were like, we're going to essentially, like, to get the, a movie like this made by a place like Warner Brothers, there are certain concessions we have to make. There are certain things that we have to do. But this will essentially Trojan horse a lot of interesting ideas about Fred Hampton, about the the civil rights era, about um, capitalism. And we're going to put it in this kind of a, a departed style thriller, you know, and we're also going to and, and be able to like sort of market it as a biopic, but also as a, a thriller, as like a 70s thriller. And with Barb and Star, it's essentially two people who have kind of gone through all these different variations of Hollywood uh, whether it's Annie Mumolo, who's written, you know, who's wrote Bridesmaids and then wrote the screenplay that became the movie Joy that David O. Russell directed. And she had a pretty negative experience where that screenplay kind of got rewritten by David O. Russell and the movie came out much differently than I think that she imagined when she wrote it. And her and Kristen Wiig, who are, are, are very good friends and, and partners, um, made this movie and clearly made this movie for just their own satisfaction their own entertainment it is obviously like a joy for them to make and Mm -hmm. it's a very challenging watch at times and but that that goes towards the fact that i think that this was actually the movie that they wanted to make and it's a comedy it's not like it's um it's not like it's an experimental film or anything although times it feels that way so i was thinking about those two movies and when you look at the Mr. and Mrs. Smith thing, is there a chance that this could be as subversive or as interesting or they're using the Mr. and Mrs. Smith IP as like a Trojan horse to get ideas about men and women or, you know, identity or what we tell each other, even though we're partners? Sure. I'm sure I'm sure all those things will come across. These are two of the most talented people making stories today. But there was a part of me that felt like, oh, I wish that their collective capital could have been used to do something either breathtakingly original and new because I desperately think we need new stories mm-hmm. or uh, something that at least superficially seemed more significant than this is going to be a really fun time on Amazon for us. Yeah, it's an interesting way to frame it because, and, and we'll get more specifically into those movies in a moment because boy, your, your boy, you know, as a longtime cinema head, <laughs> just had a great time. This weekend, watching things yeah. on the big screen, but actually it's a small screen because my TV is not big enough. Um, really enjoyed both those movies. But I think that's a really interesting way to frame it. And it echoes something that our buddy Sean Fantasy tweeted when he saw Judas and the Black Messiah a few days before we did. Basically, like, this is a pretty radical studio picture. Yeah, and compared it to, Red, to Reds, to the Warren Beatty movie Reds. Right. And Barb and Star is crazy. It's totally yeah. insane. I mean, it is a... The type of, and we'll, we'll get more into it, but basically what you said about it is exactly right. Like this movie was aggressively, wildly not made for everyone. It was made for people who will love this so deeply, they will carry it aloft in their hearts and minds and personal top 10 lists for the next 30 years. I mean, it was it was a cult classic the minute they yelled cut and it mm-hmm. was never going to be any other kind of classic. And I think that was something that they intended. And so it's interesting to suddenly look at studio movies at least have these two examples of studio movies that are pretty radical, I think, in their content and form. And then you look at the two people we we do point to as the, I mean, they are the avatars of what TV can be sure. at this moment. Atlanta and Fleabag are the best shows kind of, of Kind of revolutionized the, the form, yeah, right. And is TV hewing more conservative now? Is that is that where things are going? I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting framing for for the discussion of all of it. 
because we don't know enough about Mr. and Mrs. Smith, we can't really wait. Yeah, in. I'm not, I'm not, that, 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 like, that's an unfair connection to mi- the Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which doesn't exist and was really just announced with a fun Instagram video and features two people that you and I both adore and that people will probably in all likelihood really enjoy. And maybe it will be completely subversive. And if it has any, if it's as 75% as good as Fleabag or Atlanta, we're in for like an amazing, amazing show. I'm not necessarily trying to denigrate it as much as it just got me thinking about whether or not the best storytellers or the most popular storytellers are actually spending their creative capital in the right way. Well, that seems like a good way to get into Judas and the Black Messiah for me sure. because what among the many reasons why I was floored by this movie and I love it and I really recommend everyone check it out was and, and I do want to talk about Ryan Coogler and Chaka King and their work and uh, what it means for Hollywood and the Hollywood stories that are being told. But I do want to start with the actors with Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield who mm-hmm. are so mesmerizing in this movie. They are so thrilling that it actually made me laugh out loud at certain points. And this is not a laugh out loud movie, nor is it intended to be. They are so supremely charismatic and confident. And what it made me think of while I was watching it was the look in both of their eyes when they've been in other movies where they have had like restraints on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where they've held back a little bit. I'm thinking about Daniel Kaluuya's sly smile in four or five scenes in Black Panther, mm-hmm. which isn't to say he's better than the movie. It's just like, oh, you've got, um, you know, vibranium to keep it in, <laughs> keep it Wakandan, yeah. you know, but you're, but, you're, but, you're, but you're treating it like aluminum foil. It's not his movie to do anything with. He's just happy to be there and excited to be a part of it. And you see Lakeith Stanfield when he's just like smirking in the background of of Knives Out or something. You're happy to see him. You're always happy to see him. But then it's like, oh, they were saving themselves. They were saving their energies for this. And it's thrilling when you get to see talent like these two dudes just go for it. And I texted you. I mean, I, I was high on this movie and I stayed up way past my bedtime, but I was like, this is like De Niro Pacino just playing off each other. You know what I mean? Like these guys, and I, and I Googled them both and they're both, I forgot. They're like 32 and 29. Yeah. And yeah. we get these actors now. Yeah. And they're, they're, awesome. they're playing much younger guys in this movie. I don't, that's one of the few things that I think might throw people for a loop a little bit is I, the, the age difference between the performers and the characters. So obviously, Judas and the Black Messiah is on HBO Max. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have HBO Max. So you should definitely check it out if you haven't already. We're going to, I guess, spoil it in our conversation here. So just so you know, we'll, you can check out the time codes in case you want to skip this part. But I think that the performances are just absolute blockbuster performances, just like heavyweight performances. And I think Shaka King is like a really serious filmmaker to be reckoned with. Yes. And kind of came out of nowhere, quote unquote, but was really working on TV for a few years. And he does a, did a great interview with Julian Kimball, who often writes for The Ringer in GQ, where he talked about like, I made one movie in 2013 and was pretty much like openly told, like, <laughs> we're not buying this movie with black people in it. Yep. And so I just said, fuck it, and went and worked on high maintenance and, and a couple of TV shows and then came back around and was pitched this this movie about, uh, about Fred Hampton and... Now is in like a, a, a completely different kind of tier of filmmaker, I think, because of, of the way things shook out. Let's talk about what this means, though, for the, the, the industry and also 
the type of movies we're going to be lucky to see over the next few years. Because the Shaka King story, and there's there was another great piece on him by a friend of the pod, Reggie Ogu, in the Times the other day that I recommend. I mean, you watch this movie, and when you're and when you you know you, your eyes have adjusted to the level of sizzle and spark coming off the performances, and we should also shout out Jesse Plemons, who, by the way, I guess he's a generational talent now too. He's awesome, and also Dominique Fishback, who is so wonderful in The Deuce one of the most unsung yeah. actors on a show loaded with great actors. So exciting to see her on the big screen as well. Shout outs to friend of the pot, Alexa Fogel, for casting the S out of this movie, by the way. Um, she did a hell of a job by her. Seriously. Uh, always, but it was great in this particular case, especially so. Um, so once your eyes have adjusted to what you're seeing, this movie is so well-directed. It is beautiful to look at. The camera movements are constantly surprising but not intrusive. They're fluid. They're alive. They peer at the right things and they focus on the right things. And and there's these little show-offy things that don't feel show-offy. You know, like the like the, the way the camera spins around uh, Lakeith Sanfield in, before he goes into the bar when we first meet the character mm-hmm. um, to understand his mental state. When there's a the firebombing of the Black Panther headquarters goes to black and then the black is broken by uh, the light coming through a window of an isolation jail cell. You know, these little flourishes, it's beautiful, but it's also speaks to two things that I'm really just fills me with optimism and, and actually optimism and joy, which is rare for this moment. One is the story you described, Shaka King met Ryan Coogler at the 2013 uh, Sundance Film Festival where Ryan Coogler was top of the world for Fruitvale Station and Shaka King had made a movie that no one bought mm-hmm. and they bonded. Uh, despite that that major career disparity at that moment. And Kugler's rise in the industry allows Shaka King to have this career. Because generally speaking, if a filmmaker steps up to the plate and misses, I mean, that might be a very good movie. I don't mean to imply that it's not, but in terms of the perception, the career perception or the, the bottom line financial I've, success. Yeah, I've never seen it. Yeah, Newlyweeds he doesn't get another chance or she very often doesn't get another chance, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is not a new story. I, I, I was referring a couple of weeks ago to a movie I saw on Criterion called Old Boyfriends where a, a filmmaker named Joan Tewksbury got one shot to make a movie and they never let her make another one. But people deserve chances, right? And they deserve chances to grow. This dude is serious, right? And he's he's in now because Kugler is in before him and kept the door open. The other point I wanted to make that was so exciting about the filmmaking here is I, I got your I took your point and it came out of the interviews as well that they kind of wanted to strike a balance between what is truly a radical story about radical politics mm-hmm. and a Warner Brothers movie where they yeah. want a lot of people to see it. But I never felt that tension. What I felt was there's a there is a, a joy on screen in terms of the representation and the performances and the investment in an era that is very underreported on. I mean, I do, I do not have a deep knowledge of what happened to the Black Panther Party in this country. That's on me. But so it was exciting to see it on screen. But because it was being brought to the screen by Black filmmakers, the camera didn't just turn these characters and the script didn't and the performances didn't into archetypes, heroic or villainous. Yeah, especially the, camera, the, story, the Bill O'Neill character. The, the, it, the finds, character, yeah. it finds the crevices and the corners for these people to be fully alive you know, for Fred Hampton to also be shy and romantic and kind or to be prickly or bitter or, or whatever, right? Like there, there's a full spectrum of humanity in this movie that, uh, and I'll just say it again because I realize we just went right into raving about it, 
tells a story that is undertold, um, I think, in this country about um, political movement in Chicago that Fred Hampton was putting together while being taken care of. His head of security detail was Bill O'Neill, who was a paid FBI informant, and just the toll on everybody in this powder keg of a situation. It's it is gripping and riveting and told with real style and and it's it's a great movie. Yeah, I mean I thought that the the fumes like the Sidney Lumet fumes coming off this movie and the early Scorsese fumes coming off this movie were just really 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 like you could sniff them out. And to that end, I also thought Stanfield's performance kind of reminded me a little bit of Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy or um you know De Niro in Mean Streets like they didn't he didn't have he wasn't all one thing or another. He wasn't a rube, but he wasn't, I mean, he was, he was quite frankly, like he was a Judas character. He was complicated. He was, he was a betrayer, but he was also this interesting protagonist. And, you know, I think that if I had one criticism of the movie, it would be a matter of whether or not they really needed the extra two or three scenes that feature just Jesse Plemons without one of those two guys. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because I'm being particularly like, overly adherent to the title of the movie is this, so you have to always be there. But I I didn't really find the FBI stuff that compelling outside of like kind of lightly contextualizing what why they were going after Hampton. But I I, I actually found like the moments that Plemons's character, Roy, is he's an FBI agent, is with Bill, way more illustrative than Martin Sheen wearing a J. Edgar Hoover uniform and like outfit and, and basic full bodysuit basically and talking with, with Jesse Plemons about the FBI's attitude towards these sort of more radical movements I, in inner cities. I don't disagree with you. I think that, yeah, in terms of criticisms, the idea that the, that the real Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill were 20, mm-hmm. 21, that is a very different story and different movie and would have given it a very different energy, obviously would have forced them to have different casts. So I think that's, that's an interesting thing to consider. To the point you're making... I don't disagree with you. I think that there, to me, it, it was more of a well-intentioned failing because I think that one of the things that that is shot through this film was a level of uh, nuance and grace given to every character. Sure. And even maybe ones that history might not say deserve that. And it just ultimately didn't have the real estate to give the character of Roy, for example, Jesse Plemons' character. No, I was, yeah, I don't necessarily they, I want trying. like more Roy time. Like, no, but, <laughs> but, but, I, but I think what they were trying to do with that character as well as with Bill O'Neill was basically be like, Roy saw himself as a hero. Roy does not see himself as particularly racist or a tool of a, of a deeply corrupt or flawed, hateful mm-hmm. system. He thinks of himself as the guardian of a particular line, right? And when he invites... Bill O'Neill into his home and says, literally, make yourself at home, have the good scotch, join me. He's saying, we are, he thinks that they're equals, even though yeah, clearly Yeah, I mean, I think he's seducing not. him there too, obviously. But to, yeah. to a degree, but I think that the the scene you're talking about, which is which I've seen singled out as, as people's least favorite as well, with J. Edgar Sheen, where he sort of has to, he's asked the grossest question, basically being like, at your core, do you believe in white supremacy? I mean, that's not the question, but that's what's being asked of him. And I think the movie decides to show us where which side of that line he fell on. But I think that it was that was that was inviting a deeper level of conversation about that the nature of Roy's place in the larger system than the movie had room to give. 
Yeah, I I found it still, it was not without merit. I mean, like even that conversation has moments where J. Edgar Hoover is saying things about basically keeping things the same or not losing their way of life and, you know, protecting against this disruption to their way of life, which is the same thing people are saying today, you know, where it's like, Mm -hmm. if we don't do this, then our entire, it's just the same line of bullshit that they've been throwing at people for hundreds of years. But also, you know, um, since on some level, our our podcast is essentially about two white guys in their forties discussing this stuff. Like there is an element, I, I think this movie succeeds wholly as an artistic enterprise, but I think that there is something kind of important and restorative about putting this story back into consciousness because I think it's not just, it wasn't just about eliminating people like Fred Hampton and the movements they represented. It was about negating them and nullifying them and erasing them from history so that nothing ever really changes and nothing is left to be built upon, you know? And so to your point about things sounding uncomfortably familiar or relevant, this is actually doing it's actually doing the world a service, which I know is putting too much on the shoulders of a movie that ultimately succeeds because it it's a very, very good biopic and film and yeah, historical. The only trauma. other thing I'll say is just Kalia should win the Oscar. Kalia needs to win an Oscar. His how does he do this? That dude, he's he has that sly look in his eyes sometimes in these other movies. And it's just like, oh, it's because he was uncorked. He, he hadn't uncorked the hundred mile per hour heater yet. <laughs> dude is English. That's so mean. That is so mean that he is English and he can give these speeches as this character with that level of passion and intensity. It was it's electric. It's Should we talk a little bit about Barb and Star? Speaking of electricity, yeah. Um, I don't even know what you thought of this. You you were radio silent after I suggested you watch it. There were I, I felt like I was doing whippets. It had it had some yes. really good highs, and then there were some times where I was just like, "What is my life about right now?" I watched this movie very late at night because I was so inspired by your review. I watched it a little bit of it, then we watched Black Messiah, then I went back and finished this movie. So I was up very late watching this. That's kind of like a cinematic whippet. What you yeah. just did, and I definitely like laughed a lot, and it kind of took me back to like Austin Powers style, like just throw everything at the wall. And does anybody actually ever say cut on this set? Like just a vibe that was just like, seems like this movie was a shit ton of fun to make. It is fucking weird. Like, I I don't know how they got this movie made in a lot of ways. I don't know whether they put their own money up, but it definitely is just like, kind of like there, I don't know how much of it is improv, but it definitely feels like a lot of the scenes in the movie this is just basically a comedy where Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig play these two single mid-40s women living in Nebraska who lose their jobs at Jennifer Convertibles and take a trip to Florida and get ensconced in kind of like a James Bond movie while they're there that involves Jamie Dornan and an evil Kristen Wiig and, uh, and Damon Wayans Jr. and a bunch of other people. And it's, it's just so daffy. And really did remind me back to like back to like Dumb and Dumber and Austin Powers and those kinds of movies with this kind of Harlem Globetrotters of UCB vibe to it. But at times I was like, what am I doing with my life while watching it? These movies don't exist anymore. These movies, they stopped making them at a certain point. It has Austin Powers energy. It has Anchorman energy. You can tell why uh, Adam McKay and Will Ferrell were involved in this as producers. It also... Make, and also, I got the vibe that this has been in development for a very long time, and they were only finally able to make it. Um, 
it is not in step with the times and I love it for it. And it made me really glad that it was exists as kind of a corrective to the Apatovian school of comedy f- filmmaking, which I actually went into this movie expecting because the last Wig Mumolo film a decade ago, if you can believe it, is Bridesmaids. And it was that's and, one of the biggest comedies of the century. And and it does the Apatow thing better than most, but in the sense that it takes their energy and their humor, Wig and Mumolo, and it puts it through the morality machine that graphs a, a third act from a, an entirely other movie onto the wildness mm-hmm. to make everything work out and people get married and feel better about themselves. And that's King of Staten Island. That's Trainwreck. I mean, that's what all of those movies do. And some of them I like and some of them I don't like. This one has no interest in that, you know? And it, you could tell from the beginning when suddenly you're in this weird Austin Powersy James Bond spoof, like before the movie even starts. I thought this was going to be more Bridesmaidsy when I turned it on about these sort of middle-aged women finding something else in their yeah, lives. Yeah, I thought it was going to so, be like their version of Oh Hello. I'm so glad it, it wasn't. Like, it's so, it's so crazy. And it was so funny at times. And other times, yeah, to your point, I'm not sure if there's I There's like a five-minute Jamie Dornan song. Yeah, there's yeah. a Jamie Dornan song. There's a part where an entire scene just plays again, but with a different person in it yeah. that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> I mean, there's a talking crab voiced by Morgan Freeman. I mean, there's everything in this movie in the way the comedies used to be. And 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 is that good or bad that they're not like that anymore? It's just total everything on the wall. Thrown I think your point anarchy. about it being like a cult classic, immediate, an immediate cult classic is worth noting. Yeah, I mean, it made me wish that I took advantage of California's extremely liberal uh, marijuana laws <laughs> because I think that then I would have seen the movie in the optimal setting. Are there laws? <laughs> right, the lack of laws. <laughs> yeah. um, I just... I really dug it. I really dug it. And I respect the hell out of Kristen Wiig. I mean, her whole career has basically been like, I'm going to do this to the hilt, mm-hmm. what I like. And but she's tried a bunch of different things, right? She's tried to be a, a dramatic actress. I mean, not tried to, but she's dabbled with being a dramatic actress, like Skeleton Twins. She's She's been in Wonder Woman 1984, where she was, she was the villain, essentially, of that movie, along with Pedro Pascal. And now she's just kind of done this. This is one for her. And I guess that is... We've talked about the one for them, one for us, the sellout idea and whether or not that's a vestige of 90s ways of thinking about mm-hmm. making things. And you and I are obviously born of that generation that used to take that like pretty seriously, that that was kind of like an article of faith that you should kind of not sell out, that you should make the stuff that matters to you. And it's so bullshit to be talking about that while also talking about making things for billion dollar tech companies. But like, there was something about this movie that I definitely just respected the shit out of because it was like, you two made the movie you wanted to make. Yeah, and I'm looking at, as we're talking, like I'm looking at her filmography and maybe it's, it, it you know, we, I've never spoken to her. I don't know her at all. I don't know if it's due to her strong artistic compass or sense of self that's always been there. I don't know whether it's because she found fame relatively later in life. So she doesn't have like the IMDb page of just like, I'll take anything's. But post-Bridesmaids, I mean, there's stuff that she did because clearly her agents thought it was a good idea and maybe she thought, you know, they made a good, there was other reasons worth doing it, but whether those are like Secret Life of Walter Mitty or the Ghostbusters reboot. But generally, I mean, small dramatic parts in like The Martian and in Mother, Mm -hmm. you know, in Where'd You Go, Bernadette, like Welcome to Me. I mean, 
I just think she's got a pretty cool career that sure. is going on her terms. And to have basically been given another bite of the apple that you only, it's not an apple that many people get when you make something like Bridesmaids, right? And there was probably a very bull market for another Wig Mumolo comedy. Yeah. And they were like, this is the comedy we want to make. And I think it became a bear market pretty quickly. And they <laughs> fucking made it. And people yeah. will be reciting this movie for a long time. And I think that if you want to get silly, no matter what the laws are in your home, state, province, or country, you could do a lot worse than watch this movie. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about WandaVision. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. All right, we're back. Uh, Andy, WandaVision, um, this is episode six. So we're coming into the home stretch. There's three more episodes. There is a rumor. I don't know if it's confirmed that the last three episodes will be one hour episodes. I guess I've seen this joke made before, but that could mean they are 43 minute episodes with 17 minutes of credits. <laughs> the, uh, the credit sequence on, on WandaVision continues to be an experience uh, with no stingers. Just like, let's let it rip in another language, guys. And by the way, another thing about that is, I don't know if this is happening to other people, but because I decline to watch the credits in Danish, uh-huh. When I turn on Disney Plus, it's like, would you like to resume episode resume. five? You got to find out what Tors Fringston did on this and I, show. Right. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'll jump ahead. Thank you. Um, this was my favorite episode of the series so far. I, this has nothing to do with the wider conversation about WandaVision, although I do think it's noteworthy. This is the first one that I watched in the evening. So in the past five episodes, I have watched them on Friday mornings what? after I, I get up. Yeah. So I, I want to get ahead of it so that I'm not spoiled, you know, by Twitter, which we can talk about spoilers in general. I know that that's going to be a big factor in this conversation. But 
I watched this one midnight Thursday when it came out. And I just definitely felt like it felt more like an event to have it in the evening. That's totally in my control. But it speaks to the thing that I've said often, which is I wish Disney would just put these out at a normal time in the PM. Uh, so they felt more like primetime events rather than anytime you want to just fire this up, go ahead, but we don't care. Um, anyway, favorite episode, not, I, I, I don't think that's unrelated to the fact that this had the most action. This had the most like movement of characters. I felt like there was um, real tension. There was real sadness. I actually felt emotions this time around and uh, we can get into a bunch of different angles, but what did, what did you think of this episode? I agree with you. I thought it was, um, I mean, I, I still think the, the, the formal, the formalist fun of the first episode is to me still the high watermark for the series, but this was without question, the, the next best episode and certainly the best episode in terms of the traditional things that we look for in TV shows that we have been, you know, not criticizing so much as noting mm-hmm. <laughs> as we've discussed the last few episodes and, yeah, I think it's for all the reasons that you said. I, I I think that it had the correct balance of a wink towards the genre of the episode, the Malcolm in the Middle style comedy. The so that had some characters doing confessionals to camera. It had Kathleen Hanna singing the theme song, which is <laughs> just a wild flex by the Walt Disney Corporation. Speaking of one for us, one for them. <laughs> yeah, that's ultimately now. No wonder we like this episode. But it, it 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 had that was a part of it, but really it was about the drama of the show yeah. itself that we are meant to be watching, and you know I I I I think that that boils down to well one the tension is and the conflict is now on the surface we understand that this is something that that Wanda is doing and and why and but she, we don't know how it began which I thought was a, a, right. that that exchange between her and Pietro was really good where. They're trying to kind of get to the bottom of like, how did we end up here? And she's just like, I just felt nothing like emptiness. And then this was happening. Well, I think everyone can relate to that. I certainly can. Here I am suddenly doing a podcast. That's right. Um, it's it's an interesting thing that actually nods to one of the central um, points of fascination with a comic book that the emotional weight of the episode was actually carried by the fake robot man. You know, th- there was something kind of noble and sad and heroic about a robot who may be dead, <laughs> uh, risking himself to find out what is actually going on and what it means for those trapped in its wake. Um, I enjoyed that part a lot. But also, I, I also have to say, I really like Evan Peters. I mean, mm-hmm. I like him as an actor. I like him playing Quicksilver in the X-Men movies. And I liked the dynamic here because it was a different speed pitch and it brought out a different type of performance from uh, Elizabeth Olsen, right? Because yeah. usually she's just, she's she's playing against a robot and a, a very well-acted robot. But in this case, it's someone who is a true wild card. We don't know who he is, what he represents. Are we going to get like a ton, an of, a ton of responses about whether or not Vision is a robot? He's a synthesoid. I can do that too. Do you want me to switch hats? <laughs> I'll do it. Do you want Kai, me to talk about how they're Kai Halloween costumes? I need to go back through and punch in synthesoid every time you've said do robot. You, Listen, I'm prepared. You guys can hit like a button that, that that plays the sound of like a Sega Genesis booting up from the 90s to signify that I'm now becoming who I used to be and maybe always was. And I can tell you that the costumes that Pietro and Wanda are wearing are throwbacks to when they first debuted as members of the Magneto's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. We could talk about how Tommy and Billy are manifesting the powers that were given to them in the comics and the 
the people, the heroes that they became, thanks to my buddy Alan Heinberg, who used them in his Young Avengers series, where Billy has kind of witchy powers and becomes the character known as Wiccan. Mm. And uh, Tommy has his uncle's speed powers and is called, wait for it, Speed. Nice. So a lot of that there, little Easter eggs too, like Catherine Hahn's character, who many people, including uh, me, have speculated is related to Agatha Harkness wearing a witch costume for Halloween, even though her behavior in this episode did not suggest that she was somehow involved in this or responsible. Have you we'll thought see. about what your superhero name would be? Oh, um, the bummer? Yeah. I don't know. Should we let the listeners decide? <laughs> Mine would be a resistance dad. Wow. That's great. Would you have the hashtag on it? <laughs> yeah. Like just as I just like the most powerful uh, quote tweet in, in the land. Yeah, I... I, I <laughs> I, I always wanted to be a Krasenstein brother. Like just, just be like sl- smashing the act blue link. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the sort of, I, I, I will say, yeah, Elizabeth Olsen was great in this. I think it's the totality of her performance and seeing how that it's kind of how well she sort of tried to encapsulate each era of television in her performance has been awesome to think back on. Sometimes a little bit confusing in the moment. I think the my in retrospect issues with some of the earlier episodes was those episodes weren't very funny. And a lot of those sitcoms that they were lampooning, some of them are some of the best comedies we've ever done on television still. And so I was kind of like, these were amusing. You know what I mean? Like it was like almost anti-funny in places. And I think maybe that was part of my issue with the level, like what they were doing before. But um, yeah, so there's these two. There's still these two tracks of plot. There's what's happening with Wanda and Vision inside, and then there's what's happening outside of Westview, and that's the Monica Rambo plot, and that's moving along very quickly in a sort of Scooby Doo way with um, Randall Park and Kat Dennings and and Tiana Paris, sort of trying to solve this whole thing while Sword on is sort of working against them. I didn't. I asked you over the weekend on text message mm. whether you were aware of what the scuttlebutt is around what's coming. And I thought we could get into a larger discussion about whether that's a useful, a useful conversation to have because I, you did not want to know and you at least, or at least you were like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And yet I find that that is, if not unavoidable, at least driving, I would say conservatively 35 to 45% of the interest in this show is what this show actually does in terms of building other things. Let me put on my uh, vibranium costume so I can do the rest of the podcast in character as the bummer and say, I don't want to do the work for them. You know what I mean? Like, I I, I agree with you and we've talked about this. And and in in terms of if I'm wearing a different costume, if I'm, there's a lot of cosplay in this episode. If I am, (laughs) you know, Mr. Hollywood fix it or whatever. Like this is what makes shows like this phenomenons. It's what makes it special. The willingness and the engagement of the fan base and community to carry it aloft during the weeks or the, or the days when the episode is not on the air. Like I get that. And we've talked about it at length the other week. Um, there is a cottage industry that is absolutely what Marvel comics has existed for all these years for to support. I mean, there's just so much textual stuff that you could dig into and dive into and rabbit holes to fall down. And I think that can be really um, diverting or distracting and fun or some combination of all three. Truly, this maybe it's because I'm old or have kids or don't have time or am jaded or a bummer or whatever. But like, I read the comic books mm-hmm. generally. I kind of know 
the stories that they are playing on, drawing from, the characters they might bring to life. And I don't get a particular thrill from seeing them. Maybe I would have at a younger age. I would, but I guess what I like seeing is how they pull off the story. You know what I mean? So it's like I, I when they announce the multiverse and that Ant-Man is going to be in it and that, you know, Michael Douglas is playing Hank Pym. I'm not, I don't get chills up my spine. No. Finally, I will see chills. Hank Pym brought to life. You know what I mean? I, that's not, that's not me. Right. But I, I did admire the way that they integrated the fact that there were two ant men in comic book history and created an interesting dynamic that powered two pretty good movies. So that's part of the answer. The other answer that I actually wanted to turn into a question. Okay. For you, and this is Chris may end up spoiling all of us. I'm not sure. He hasn't decided yet. I, I, I look in his eyes and I see that he's choosing violence right now. No, the thing that you know Hashtag what matters. You know what matters more than this podcast is our dead. friendship. And if oh. you don't want to know what I know, you probably oh, already know it anyway. But like, hit me with your question. But so I wanted to ask you guys, you and Kaya, but also listeners. I'm trying to piece together based on the smallest sample size imaginable, which is my personal family home pod what where we are with spoilers and spoiler mm-hmm. culture the reason i ask this is because my older daughter is uh seven and a half years old and she is as of this morning has just finished the sixth harry potter book and is more consumed by these books than she's ever been with anything and it's awesome it's great yeah these books are long af and are you still reading a, every one of them with her no i she dusted me okay I, for people who don't know there's no reason why you would I never engage with any Harry Potter content ever from the moment those books were published to the movies because I was like, one day, I hope I will have a child. I'll have, yes. I, so I, I started I, I reading- I will give birth to a wizard. Yes. I mean, seeming like it because I read the first book. Uh, I started reading the first book to her. She got bored with my pace and picked it up during the day and just crushed it. And I mean, the fifth book- Chris, is 870 pages. This is McMurtry length. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she just housed it. Yeah. You know? It's wild. But anyway, she's totally consumed by it. It's all she wants to talk about. I have connected her with Mallory Rubin, so hopefully that will burn off some of the extra energy um, for both of them. But what she loves is reading the books. What she loves even more is knowing what's coming, and it takes no pleasure out of the experience for her. Oh, so she, she knows how, on, it, how it ends and everything. Yes, not only that. So she got on Zoom last week with her cousin and who has finished the series and came out of her bedroom after an hour Zoom dazed and thrilled because she knew who dies. That's what mm-hmm. she wanted to know. Yesterday, I got her the seventh book in anticipation and final book in anticipation of her finishing the sixth. And as soon as she got it, she flipped to the last four pages that are head that are headlined 19 years later. And that blows my mind. Like, I, am I old-fashioned that I would never, or is this just the same guy who wouldn't, you know, do a traffic violation playing Grand Theft Auto? Maybe it's that. Because my father will get the new, like, Kazuo Ishiguro book, read the book flap, then read the last page, and then settle in to read the 500 pages that came before. Are you so serious? Clearly some, yeah, so some people are wired differently. Uh, the new Ishiguro book ends with a 19 years flashback. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> um, I, I guess I wanted to know how you feel about that kind of thing in things that you are passionate about. And, and Kaya, I, I do want to ask you if you have a particular viewpoint either about Harry Potter or about spoiling stories 
Is this an old argument? Let's have Kaya go first. Speaking specifically to Harry Potter, which Thank I you. also was a very big fan of as a child, I could never imagine flipping to the end of a book to immediately find out who uh, dies. I think that would definitely take the pleasure of reading it out of it for me. But speaking like more broadly about spoilers and like spoiler cultures, I think one of the lamest things you can be upset about is like getting something spoiled for you, especially if you're like online a lot and like on Twitter after something comes out. Uh, I don't really like, I mean, you know, I get stuff spoiled for me all the time as part of my job. So it's kind of just something that I have to let go and not be too upset about. Are you mad at me because I talked about the talking crab and Barb and Star? <laughs> yeah. Was that a subtweet? Yeah. Me? I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's huge. That's, that's going to basically, there's no point. Kaya, did you read, room. did you read Harry Potter's as they were coming out or were, were they already um, done when you started reading them? I think I had caught up by the time, like the sixth, seventh and eighth books had come out. I was uh, caught up, but I don't. I don't even know like how I would have gone about getting them spoiled for me at that point. You know, because right. it's not like I was like on Twitter when I was like. <laughs> I mean, there's my daughter, to be fair, but <laughs> so I, I think Andy, it's worth noting that there are two different kinds of things that we you can be talking about. At least two different kinds of things. There's one which is Harry Potter, Marvel, Star Wars, which mm-hmm. the big the big ones. Yeah, and I think it, a lot of these things, as we have outlined, are dealing with. Um, Various timelines. So obviously Star Wars largely now is taking place in and around the original three films, right? Like the a lot of the movies that we're seeing are happening, or a lot of like Mandalorian and Rogue One are all happening in and around before New Hope or after Jedi, but before Force Awakens. And these are kind of like, oh, I know where this is going. When the Cassian Andor show comes out, like it will be a quote unquote tragedy because we know how his life ends. Do you know what I mean? Because of Rogue One. Then there's stuff like, don't tell me how The Departed ends. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's like, if it comes out and like a review spoils it. And I, I think a lot of the times my frustration with spoilers are really more a frustration with myself. Like, mm. I'm addicted to Twitter. I'm addicted to kind of idly looking at the internet. Oftentimes, for reasons of SEO, sites will put up everything you need to know about the ending of this episode or movie mm-hmm. and in that headline or in that deck somehow kind of give away a character fate or whatever. And I just am like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, why can't I just stay off this goddamn app until I watch this thing that I've been looking forward to? So I, I get mad at myself more than I get mad at others. But then there is this whole other thing that kind of speaks to what you're saying. Like, I've done the work already. Like, I've read these comic books and I know what generally speaking, is coming. That's true. But I think that there was something very significant that happened. And I, I, I kind of pin it to Rogue One and to what happened at the end of Rogue One and mm-hmm. what that unlocked, which is essentially not just mining something and saying like, let's go back to some of the elements of this original story that you like. It's mm-hmm. like, no, no we are going to get on our Civil War outfits and full-on go to Gettysburg and recreate it. And you're talking about not the explosion at the end of Rogue One, but the Darth Vader at the end of Rogue One. The Darth Vader part, right. And that feeling that I think people had, and it's a feeling that I shared, and I've not even fully unpacked, of like, holy shit, has my whole life been leading up to this moment? (laughs) 
<laughs> is very, very, very potent. It's very powerful. And when you read about some of the things that they might do with, uh, with WandaVision, I can imagine that there are groups of people out there, both because they have been waiting their whole lives for the thing to be portrayed that they want to mm-hmm. see, or because they actually feel like they have fucking willed it to happen with their mental energy about who should be cast in what part and who should show up in this show, that that participation exists almost entirely outside of whether or not WandaVision is good or not. Yes, I agree with that. You know? I agree with that, and, and I, I appreciate what you're saying because I am a hypocrite here. Because, for example, reading all 16 pages of Jeff Jensen's lost essays every week, they weren't mm-hmm. even recaps anymore. They just went into, like, Dada mythological fan fiction. Biblical etymology of, of stuff, you know, yeah. I came to enjoy those almost as much as the show. And they also inflated and expanded my my devotion to the show. I, I, even when they didn't yeah. line up. I also, that was completely how I watched seasons one and three of True Detective. Was, well not, I, I mean season one I think is is special and, and separate, but I, I got lost in the, let's think about what this show could be about rather than what it obviously is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it, it is all connected, and and you know I, I think it's true that if a show, if if the pleasure of a movie or television show can be negated by learning a thing that happens, then there's an issue with the thing itself, right? I mean, early seasons of Game of Thrones would be exceptional storytelling, even if you knew the, about the Red Wedding. Yes, but but. My experience of that was as pure shock. Yeah. And I don't know that something like that can ever happen again. Yeah. Like, it, I don't it, know that people not would behave themselves, but like the amount of people in my life who had obviously read those books. And when we got to experience the Red Wedding the first time on a Sunday night, everybody together and everybody lost their minds and everybody who had read the books were like, see, I told you. Or like, I, yeah. I aren't you glad I didn't spoil that for you? You guys were pretty, hey, readers, you were pretty cool about that, I got to say. Are you being That's serious? That's true. Yes. Yeah. They legitimately were. Yeah. Uh, right. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I think it does step into, so maybe the thing about using the Harry Potter, now, I mean, that, that, that suggests two, two potential responses. One is, unlike Kaya's experience and a lot of the people who read them the first time, like these are entrenched canon around the world now. And yeah. it is very, very hard to, I mean, especially if you're a kid, it's not like, going on Twitter, but it's probably worse to like go on playgrounds, you know, yeah. once we're allowed to go on playgrounds again, because yeah. people will talk about that stuff. Two, and I was, I, I was say, just like walking around playgrounds when I was a kid, spoiling the crying game for people. <laughs> was, were kids like in the sandbox generally fans of Neil Jordan's films? Yeah, like, they were, I mean, we were talking about the troubles a lot anyway. I have nothing else because this is pre, this is the pre the Easter this is pre Easter Sunday agreement so it was it was definitely like <laughs> kids were popping off yeah yeah you know? there's no question about it um, but also I think it speaks in this case to like this uh, I don't know who I'm apologizing to there's a major as I now know having not read it there is a major death in the Harry Potter Potter world at the end of the sixth book yeah and I think that for a a seven-year-old, maybe most seven-year-olds. Um, that would be a formative would, experience. But it would be too rough. 
mm. to approach it without any kind of breadcrumb trail or even knowledge, you know, because I think it's just not, I think it's, I think it's heavy. I mean, I've been told this, that these books get really dark and really heavy, but you can't ration them out. Like I think when she wrote them, J.K. Rowling, it was cool because people reading them would age one year or so with the characters. And so yeah. maybe might be in a more emotionally mature place to finish things off. Um, but now, no, I have a second grader talking about the mark of Death Eaters. So, you know, thanks, I just, thanks I genre just think, fiction. To bring it back to WandaVision, I don't think that I would even be talking about this if the people who made WandaVision didn't talk about it. And if the people who made Marvel movies and film and TV didn't say it's all part of a bigger picture. Everything yeah. we're doing here is a building block to building something else. And Elizabeth Olsen is doing press hits where she's just like, we have a Luke Skywalker level reveal coming. That's like great marketing, but it does then you just Google it. You'll start to see what she's talking about. Well, let's do then our most recent iteration of the conversation we tend to have about Marvel, which is a conversation we have more and more anyway on the podcast, which is, I hope that in this um, tranche of new content, that something like Moon Knight, use of for, for example, yeah. I was saying that to, to show that I sometimes watch industry <laughs> with the subtitles on. Yeah. Um, that something like Moon Knight could just please just be Moon Knight. Yeah. You know, well, that's, what's, I, I, that's what the first season of Mandalorian was. Yes. And, and then they, everything is just, you know, spinoff fodder. But I, I really hope that they are, and I think they are smart enough to do this, put down some stones in the path that'll just be stoned. Like, just put it down. You know, okay. make tell a story. Tell one version of a for story. All, because you know, like for all we it know, is exhausting. It, they, they could be doing a little bit of a, a rope-a-dope and the, it's not as significant as what they're saying is going to Well, happen. even if it's not as significant as what they're saying, there's no question that WandaVision and probably Falcon and Winter Soldier connect to the larger next phase of the Marvel Universe and sure. the movies. That was by design. But I do hope that not I can tell I'm not enticing be. you to know this spoiler. No. Do you want me to sign off and you can tell Kaya? I don't want to know. Okay. Don't check your mentions after this pod. <laughs> <laughs> not, also not a problem. I guess we can wrap it up there. Love. I, I really enjoyed this episode of WandaVision. I'm excited for the next three. Do you care that they might be hour hour-long episodes? No, because I think, as you correctly pointed out, it's just a credits issue. I think they all the episodes are essentially thirty three minutes. But you know, <laughs> shout out, shout out to the people in 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 Belarus finally getting shine for their translations. We'll wrap it up there. We have a really fun episode coming on Thursday, so I uh, hope everybody has a great week, and we'll see you on Thursday. Happy President's Day, Bernanskis. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.